Blog Talk Radio. This is Patty Holster, and this is KWAD Radio, and we've been down thanks to a server issue on uh, that Cox, Cox Communications. Um, so we're <laughs> kind of kind of like, oh, maybe it's working, and uh, we'll see whether or not we can stay up. Ah, oh, technology is wonderful, isn't it? So you did say uh, you want me to reboot that? Okay, so uh, we're kind of scrambling here, trying to figure figure out what uh, we're doing here, and we are uh, a little more than half an hour late. Sorry about that. Again, this is Gayward Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand, and we are on live. I know it's not Memorex. See, you couldn't even get onto Weaver, so now we're we're on down. So, hey, we we should be okay. Hopefully, um, we'll get knocked off. If we do, apologize right now, just in case we don't have another chance to. <laughs> no, this is obviously we're 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 on the next we're on the next space show uh, with Alan Joe and hey, there we are finally. I know. Okay, you know, technology just you can't live without it. You can't live with it. Kind of just, a woman, isn't it? Don't even go there. <laughs> don't even go there. I got too many memories of that kind of thing going wrong. Wow, well, yeah, well, yeah. I only took, I only had one, and it was a man. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with us. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Happy 45th anniversary, everybody. 45 years since the landing on the moon. For Apollo 11, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong... They did a bang-up job, you know? Well, you know, it wasn't just them. Yeah, of course not. You know, you had, I mean, if it hadn't been for Warner Von Braun coming over and right. uh, the team that he built uh, to president, literally... The president saying that, that, you know, hey, we're going to the moon. President Kennedy doing his political one-upmanship. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, these are just some of the names that went into making it possible for the United States to put two men on the moon. Um, I would like to think that it was a, like it was a complete, uh, you know, American, every one of us has something to do with it. Well, yeah. With our money. <laughs> with our money, our rockets, our fuel. Our fuel. You know, I mean, Werner Von Braun was, I mean, he was 
naturalized citizen, but he was he was American. Yeah. But you know, for all of that, you know, I, I, we'll start this. Forty-five. That would make him middle aged. Yeah. <laughs> That'll make who middle aged? Well, the anniversary. Okay. <laughs> a Facebook guy, some, somebody on Facebook today shared um, that uh, NASA has put up a little video um, that we wanted to talk about on our first thing tonight. Oh, yeah. Um, Let me get that up. Okay. In honor of the 45th anniversary. Did you refresh? You got the video, right? Okay. Yeah, it should be good. Um, in honor of the 45th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon, July 20th, 1969, NASA has released information on their website. I'm give you guys the video first, just so you guys know. Uh, under your chat information is all the things that he's talking about so that way you can just click on it and bam you're there. <laughs> if you want to call. Yeah. Try to with them. Call. Please. Sure. You're the only one. 714-242-5145. You know we, re we really thank you for joining us uh, or listening in after the show however you choose to tap into what we have to offer. Yeah, I appreciate when you guys, you know, on Facebook said, hey, that's a bummer that we couldn't do the show. We appreciate that. Yeah. Well, so, but... Um, Got you anyway. <laughs> one of the things, is, the, the article talks about, um, the, or the video, I'm sorry, uh, was an effort by NASA to create a, um, a, a uh, what do they call this? A 3D rendering of what the Apollo 11 landing site looks like today. Now, the interesting thing is they they talk about this. Uh, the the Apollo 11 landing site is visualized in three dimensions using photography and a stereo digital elevation model from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera. And they talk about the guy who did this for them. Um, used uh, the images from the LRO. He did a uh, uh, what did he do with the he brought in the uh, oh where was it? Camera? He brought in he brought in a 3D model of the descent stage uh -huh. and put that in place. Uh, they took the LRO images and overlaid them on the, the top of the 3D image. And it, it's kind of cool. Until? It's roughly about 40 some odd seconds. 40 seconds. And it's an intriguing visualization. Intriguing. I mean, it, it, from that's, not, that's not what you were bellowing about. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. uh, the, the link you've got up here for the video is the unedited, British unedited visualization, and it's interesting. But on the other hand, I'm way disappointed. 
This is 2014. I mean, we are seriously into tech these days. Right. And when I saw the link, and it said something about a visualization of the Apollo. It doesn't, doesn't always work. We well, there's know. that. And when the link said something about uh, scientific visualization of the Apollo 11 landing site, I thought, oh, okay, cool. You know how they did the Martian thing where you did the flyby down into the canyon and all that kind of good stuff? That was pretty yeah. neat. Yeah. So that's kind of what I expected this time. That's not what we got. Not. Not, not even close. Not even close. Not even close. I mean, we're, we're probably looking at a... Guys. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this this looks like it's, what, maybe a square mile or a square kilometer to the moon's surface. And, I mean, it includes some interesting topography. Um, but you're looking at the landing site from way high up. I, I, I don't know what altitude they specified. I thought they specified some altitude. And on the page, they've actually got a, a photograph of, uh, I think, Buzz Aldrin setting up uh, a reflector. And, you know, I, I kind of, I saw the photograph and I thought, you know, if they're going to really do the 45th anniversary justice, maybe they're holding off to the 50th. I don't know. That's a lot of time to do that. But the, if you're going to do a 3D visualization, well, by gum, take us down to the site. The LRO right. should have enough resolution to get us down to footprints. I think so. You know, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe my expectations, like many people, like many of the kids, you know, the teenagers, we talked about, well, you and I talked about this a while back. The and kids assumed we were still on the moon. Right. So here they are looking at this thing that, that you know, is boring as dirt because that's what they're actually it's seeing. It's dirt, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you don't even get... You don't see anything. Whatever the artist or animator did to put the descent module in place, I mean, it's it's so small, it's almost unrecognizable. There's a little blip and the... And the, yellow, and the uh, the module becomes a little clearer, and the dirt around or the soil around the module smooths out briefly, and that's the change that you get. There's, um, and, and I, I have no doubt that may have taken some work. Well, but the point is, though, that I mean, it's, it's so boring that the kids are not going to get interested in, in space when this is well, this is representation that we're saying. If they want to inspire STEM, as you suggest, right, then we've got to have something that gets people excited. You've got, you, you got, you got Kerbal Space Program out there. You can literally build a ship, launch it, right. and land it on the moon in the game, for crying out loud, yeah. with a lot better resolution than what we've got here. Um, and this is, while it's interesting, right. it's not cool. It's not exciting. There's nothing cool and exciting about this. And it's not even finished. I mean, what we're seeing here is an unedited version of the 45-second well, video. So I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, what, what, what's the point? So anyway, it's, it's, it's a new look at the, at the landing site. And it has some 
interesting aspect to it. But if that's what my tax dollars are being spent for, we're being cheated. Yeah, we're being shut dry for no reason. Yeah. Just like those moons right there. Yeah. So, so, but anyway, on another note, uh, the next link is NASA thinks astronauts could live in caves beneath the moon's surface. Oh, gee. Go figure! Now, maybe that'll hold your nose. Huh? I don't know, maybe. But it, but here's the thing. NASA's talked about what they're finding here. And here's the thing. They've got over they've they've found and identified at least as many as two hundred lunar pits. Now, these aren't craters. Pits. Pits. These are actual holes in the ground with a space underneath them. In other words, it's a cave in the ground, in the dirt. And is that real safe, though? Well, I suppose. I don't see why not. I mean, it's on the moon. Um, basically, what these are described as, they're they're one of one of a couple of different formations. <laughs> one is a meteorite hits hits the moon, and the pool. There's a pool that forms in the center bottom of the crater, that is actual liquid rock, molten rock, and ultimately as it cools, um, different geological material cools at different rates, and so in some cases the lava melts away and you're left with this cave, hmm. or a lava right. tube in many cases. Right. Okay. Um, all over the earth where we have volcanoes, we find lava caves where the lava burned its way through underground areas and left behind, as the lava moved on, it left behind this tunnel, yeah. you know. So, and this is this is one aspect of what they're thinking about. Now, most of these pits, um, what they're thinking these are is where these lava tubes or these lava caves have actually collapsed at a center point. Some of them as small as a few feet um, in diameter. Some of them as big as 900, 900 yards. I had to, I'm amused because I just got this vision of a T-shirt. Uh -huh. says, uh, our mom went to the moon, and all I got was a pit. <laughs> I think it's the moon, and I'm living in the pits. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God, we got to do that. <laughs> okay, write it down, write it down. We'll, we'll cover it later. We'll make a poster of that. We'll make a poster. We'll make a poster. Yeah, a T-shirt. That, that yeah. a T-shirt, okay. But, but here's the thing. The, the reason, they've got 200 of these. Now, the nice thing about them is, is some of them appear to be big enough that you could you could land a habitat in and then slide it up underneath the cover, and it would protect you from radiation. It would protect you from micrometeorites. It would put you in the shadow, which means you wouldn't have the sun shining on you, making it really, really hot. So, a lot of potential benefits to, to that. Um, although, um, one downside is, of course, you've got to land inside the crater, inside the hole. And once you land, then you've got to slide your habitat underneath the cover. So, most of people are going, would wind up being, we're not going to know how to. 
Well, it depends. You know, you get a good, you send a crew with a good pilot. The pilot can get into those craters. I mean, you know, there's 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 ways to that. do that. I mean, they figure all that trajectory out pretty solid. Of course, the challenge is, is if those are collapsed ceilings, you're going to have a real hard time landing in the rubble beneath that opening. And that's where the challenge is going to happen. Because that's not going to be smooth like it is out on the Mary Mare areas, the the sea areas. So it, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Uh, the next link, uh, the next piece of news we got here, we got these congressmen from um, oh, where which states? What was these states? Shoot, um, three congressmen from two states. That already sounds weird. Okay, so. Um, are saying that, that that NASA needs to provide more details on the anomalies that SpaceX has been experiencing for the last several launches. What anomalies are that? Well, the last few times we had some helium leaks. We've had water show up inside the uh, the Dragon cargo craft on the last splashdown, and these congressmen are saying that. NASA needs to release publicly answers as to what these anomalies were and what the status is. Now, and they're saying that NASA has the right to demand this from SpaceX because the taxpayers are paying part of that bill. Now, personally, personal, I agree with the comment I saw in the article that this is more mudslinging on the part of these guys because the sour grapes because SpaceX is potentially in a position to take some of their business. Yeah, I think. While, while I suspect that's possibly true, the, the other side of the coin is is that it doesn't matter if SpaceX takes some of their business. There's going to be more, plenty more business to go around. I mean, the reality is, is as I mean, when you look at the, the um, oh, the constellation of satellites Google just went up with Orb 2. They put up a, a bunch of satellites. These weren't just single satellites they put up. This was a constant, small constellation of several satellites that were then discharged into their particular orbital positions. Um, and I don't remember how many it was. Oh, here it is. It was six commercial satellites in one launch. Now, these are that's six satellites in one launch, and not only do you have to get each one to their appropriate orbital altitude, yeah. but you got to get them into the right position where they belong. Right. SpaceX succeeded. I think they did a bang up job. They got them there. They got them there. By the way, that's the next next link to put oh. <laughs> You got to be catching up here. Get them out. I did. Okay. Now this this past week has actually been very interesting because um, two of the um, uh, commercial cargo competitors, SpaceX and Orbital Sciences, both launched a supply ship to the ISS um, this past week. In fact, they were literally um, a day apart. Now, when was the last time you ever remember that we did anything? We launched anything a day apart. No. no. 
you know, SpaceX launched on July 4th, or uh, delivered uh, its satellites. And, you know, as if they couldn't. I mean, come on. Well. You know. I know. Oh, I'm sorry, but, you know, so-and-so went up yesterday. Yeah. So? Well, here's the thing. Now, now uh, SpaceX has been targeting the ability to deliver 12 launches per year. Right. They're nowhere near that. They're, I think they're two or three this year. I can't remember. I'd have to check my notes, which I don't have well, in front of me. I'll get there. Um, and, but the launch uh, on the 14th delivered the six commercial satellites for Orbcom. And in, on the 13th, uh, the Orbital Sciences Booster and Terry's lifted off around lunchtime Eastern Time and delivered the Cygnus resupply craft up to the International Space Station. So, you know, we got we got stuff happening, guys. Uh, you got to keep up. Um, we have an interesting news article now because, you know, some, we've been watching uh, many of the new space players, uh, X-Core, SpaceX, uh, Bigelow, uh, also the Stratolaunch Company, which is uh, making progress as well, although not a whole lot these days, because um, they're still building their facility. Um, but Bigelow Aerospace uh, is a company building inflatable habitats, and they have decided to start hiring uh, two astronauts as pilots. Oh. Or no, is it pilots? I think so. No, well... They can serve as pilots, I think, because they were from—they're both from the sh shuttle program. But um, Kenneth Ham and George Zamka are going to start are forming the core of Bigelow's own private astronaut corps. Now, what these guys will do is they will be the first ones to go up and initialize the Bigelow private space station. Now, did you know that was coming? Yeah, I know it was coming. You know it was coming? Well, that's right, because I've been beating you over the head with it for a yeah, while. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, in addition to this, um, Bigelow has said the smallest space station this company plans to fly will require two of their inflatable BA-330 modules. Now, each one, now the number tells you a little bit about the module. It tells you how many cubic inches it's going to be inside, 330 cubic inch, cubic meters, I'm sorry, correction, of internal space. Um, the company expects to finish building the first two of these modules by 2017. That seems kind of long. Well, you know, they, they've got to fund it. They've got to get through the technology. Yeah, yeah, they've sure. got contractors to deal with. Uh, space ain't, it neither is it, it's neither cheap nor fast. But that's because well, that's because we're building infrastructure right now. I mean, think about it. You got Virgin Galactic, X-Core are both building a suborbital taxi service. Basically, the ability to get up to suborbit to take tourists and also to generate experiments and things for different science and business companies. Then you've got um, You've got Orbital Sciences with the Antares Cygnus combination. You've got uh, Dragon 
You've also got the Russians, various other companies such as ESA, European Space Agency, all serving, and now Japan, all serving to provide services that can launch and deliver satellites and cargo into low Earth orbit. Bigelow adds the next piece of infrastructure, which is actually a destination other than the International Space Station. As soon as we can get businesses into orbit, we're going to start finding justification for sending more and more people. Because if you put a business in orbit, even if all you start out with are lab techs, well, they're going to start, eventually you're going to need payroll. Sure. You're going to need shipping and receiving. You're going to need a cargo guy. You're going to need all sorts of clerks. You're eventually going to need a cook to prepare meals. You're going to well, need. Well, they'll come first. But. You're eventually going to need a maid to handle room service. So you know you got a lot of the stuff bellhop. here. Yeah. Uh, the bellhop, the doorman to meet you at the well, at that the would entry be hatch. Well, have a doorman in space. That would <laughs> <laughs> space suited figure who who waves them up to yeah, the docking hatch. Right. Yeah, see, there you go. There you go. Ooh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Story idea there. I know. Right? <laughs> doorman in space. Orbital doorman. I know. I'm just like, like, wow. The stories you could tell. Oh, and, and, and oh, he, think I about this. I an old man and, tell, and say, oh, yeah, I remember the first day that you, you came to space, you know. And he'd be, he'd be retelling the story. <laughs> I, I could even see, you know, we could have <laughs> tenement, tenement units. Oh up there, yeah, yeah. all right. Yeah. yeah, you got your highfalutin ones over here in the BA, the BA twenty one hundreds, and then you got the the slum housing over here in the BA three thirty. The doorman knows them all and knows everything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Who slips and slides down the highway hallways? And yeah. Who's visiting yeah. whom? Who's visiting whom? Yeah. Whose boots are under whose bed? Who knows now? <laughs> only a doorman. Yeah, something something this week's been kind of interesting because you get we've had we've had uh, two craft uh, go into orbit, and yet we've had several articles that talk about going underground. Well, you, you go are going go down. Go. They always say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> European Space Agency has been training um, caving uh, training people to become familiar with not only living underground, but also uh, learning how to handle the geological issues of being in space. Oh my God, you realize space. that this means? What? That we're going to be cavemen. Again. I can't. Again. I can't. Isn't that scary? circle. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, that gives a whole new meaning to the, cave, to, the, to the circle of life thing, right? I know. We're going back, yeah. back to the ground. Going right back into the ground. But this, you know, this is really interesting because one of the things that you know, one of the biggest pushes that's been in new space in the past 20, 30, even 40 years, 30 years, um, Gerard K. O'Neill and several others posited that we could build space habitats with artificial gravity, all sorts of stuff, and live in these beautifully, wonderfully polished, thousand-person orbital habitats uh, with economy and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's a wonderful dream. It's a very wonderful dream, and I know we'll get there someday. someday. It just ain't going to happen anytime soon. No. Um, but this actually has a lot of potential. Um, so the ESA trainers and caving specialists 
went underground in Sardinia, Italy, and they wanted to set the scene for space-like astronaut training later this summer. So CAVES, C-A-V-E-S, is short for Cooperative Adventure for Valuing and Exercising Human Behavior and Performance Skills. Wow. Basically, it's going to have astronauts, trainers, and planners a chance to test space-like procedures while exploring uncharted caves and new environments. Now this year, they're going to step up the space realism and exploration while testing more technology and procedures. So check out the link. Read more up on it. A lot of interesting in, in details. We'll hear more about that on there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure we will. Um, although, with a lot of the other dissonant and separate projects that are going on around the world, um, there's the Mars 500, 500 days in a, in a habitat. Um, they, they don't last long in the news. And this is, this is the one challenge that we face, trying to keep up with what's really going on in the news. Um, we could meet the couple who could be the first humans to travel to Mars. Now, oh, Adam and Eve in space. No, let's not go there. <laughs> Although they are going to be on the road, or they're going to be on the float for six months. How about that? On the float. Well, Eve's probably been on the float for a while. You know what? <laughs> Thinking about stories, I'll bet there's going to be a book on that when they come back. Making love in space. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we already talked about that one. Before. Yeah, that that's going to be interesting. That's right, we did. We talked about some of the devices that could, you some of the new to, toys. You have to have. Yeah. Certain things. Well, yeah. It's that old Newton's Newton's law. Every action triggers a reaction, and it's an opposite and equal action. You thrust, and she's going to keep going. I, yeah, I, I just, I didn't, I was not going there. <laughs> Here's me, as usually, I'm being calmed down. Yeah, 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 yeah. You and your brain. It's just, I was thinking about the bungee cord, but that's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, something that's dropping them. Anyway, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> now, Dennis Tito is part Dennis Tito. Remember, he was one of the first uh, space tourists. Is partnering with Paragon Space Systems. Now, Paragon Space Systems is a leading designer of life support systems and body suits for extreme environments. And they're currently together. They're developing a vehicle for commercial balloon trips to the atmosphere and technology for private moon landings. But they've got the most grandiose hopes for Mars. So sending the first humans into orbit of another planet could ignite another Apollo movement. And I don't even want to go there because I don't think it will. Um, people have a much shorter attention span now than they did in the days of Apollo. And so that's a real big issue. Yeah. So big news on a, on a semi-political note. Um, the article says that the Air Force certifies SpaceX Falcon 9 V11 as having flown three successful flights. Uh, yeah, we knew that. We knew they flew several flights. But the Air Force certification in writing <laughs> paves the way for full certification by the end of 2014. In other words, by the end of this year... It's like saying you have to have, you have, to have a marriage license on paper in order to have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that what the government says? 
well, that's, that's what. That's the implied. Yeah. yeah. So they may still have to actually have that on them. Yeah. On their. Um, so, but with with the Air Force having officially certified their launcher as having flown three successful consecutive flights, the paves the way for SpaceX to complete the full certification process by the end of this year and begin competing for award of those big money government launch contracts starting that's in 2015. Why, that's why they have to be safer. Well, yeah. That's right there. They want to get into those other contracts. And, and honestly, I, I think it's one of the best things that we can do is get them involved. Uh, there are a lot of things that SpaceX is doing that's exciting. There are a lot of things, because it's their rocket now, that they can try uh -huh. and experiment with that NASA would never be able to do. And, of course, this is what's got those Colorado and Alabama guys going eight nuts, because they can't see what SpaceX is doing with that ship. And, honestly, if they deliver the job... Why the hell the matter? There, you know, I, I remember, I've, I've been in multiple industries. I've been in the computer industry. I've, I've been in the maintenance industry. I've been in the construction industry for a while. Um, you were in dance. I was a dancer for a while. And i got to tell you, well, anybody who's been in performing arts can tell you, no matter how many times you rehearse a scene or a show, there are <coughs> at least a dozen faux pas or anomalies during the course of the performance. <laughs> Things that just... Well, I guess not being able to get it up at all. That's another story. Well, there's that. <laughs> Although I don't think I've ever had that problem. Uh, yeah, but right. anyway. So you say. So you say. <laughs> these anomalies are a part of life as long as there really isn't a whole lot of issue with the anomalies of SpaceX's has had to deal with any more than the anomalies that NASA has had to deal with for launches that they've had over the years. Yeah, of course. There, I can remember many times. Sure. Uh, experiencing the times when the space shuttle, or before that, the the, the launchers that were used, uh, the Saturn V, or the Delta, mm -hmm. they end up with, there are anomalies. Mm -hmm. Do we need to report on every stinking one of them? Not necessarily. If they, if, if, for example, Challenger and Columbia both had anomalies that, in hindsight, we learned needed to have been addressed and weren't. Right. Now, does that mean that in, in the current circumstance, does SpaceX need to answer to NASA for the anomalies that's occurred? I don't think so, because there's no harm, no foul. Well, they're, they're their own company. The missions, well, here's the thing. The point of the congressman has, val, has validity because you're looking at a situation where you're paying for the launch, right? So you wheel the rocket out there, you set it up, you load it full of fuel. Oh, three seconds before launch, you got an anomaly. Okay, we got to download the fuel. we got all this time and effort we got to spend. All right, more money. Potentially more money, but see, NASA's contract with SpaceX, I don't think, does that because I think SpaceX's bid in the contract, or at least the contract, probably specifies a certain amount as a buffer in the event that there are issues with the launch yeah. or the preparation or the delivery. Right. But here's the thing: if a mission goes off, 
And if that mission delivers the result that was desired, sure. then whether there were anomalies or not, who cares? And in the case, for example, that they found seawater inside the Dragon capsule on a splashdown not too long ago, did it affect anything? No. Did it expand? No. Did it endanger everything? Not really. Then why bother with it? Then, then why bother with the extra work? Sure. It's just make work to make somebody's job harder. Or, or to get somebody something. SpaceX is going to look at that, and they're going to do the work to right. find out what what happened for because yeah. it's it's in their best interest to do so. Sure. But should they report those findings to the government? I don't think so. I really think that's overstepping the congressional boundaries on that. Yeah. You know, so I, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, there's there's points on on both sides of the the fence there. But I think it'll be interesting to see definitely how that plays out. We have some new news from the United Kingdom. The government has a plan to build a spaceport somewhere in the United Kingdom before 2018. Now, the point that goes with this is, is there is no commercial space company yet demonstrated a space plan is capable of carrying passengers. In the UK. In the UK. But their plan is to build a spaceport at a remote site where regular air, airline traffic is low, and then the location also has to have longer than usual runway, blah, 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 uh, for the space planes that will be traveling. Now, okay. Are there any space planes under construction in the UK? Actually, yes, there is. The Skyline. Oh. Reaction Limited uh, is working on the engine for the ultimate space lane for there, which is basically cargo only, although there are um, ideas for carrying passengers. Well, here's the question. 2018 seems to be kind of, I mean, to me, um, that's a little soon. Well, okay. Have, yeah. The thing to remember is, is it's a spaceport. It's like building an airport. Right, but it's going to sit there, and we all know... <laughs> That when you leave a building sitting with nobody caring for it, what happens? It goes back into the wild. Yeah, stuff happens because you don't. You can't afford a full maintenance crew. Exactly. You can't afford a full cleaning crew to keep it up. No, um, what's the freaking point? And without revenue, yeah. Now, in addition to that, one thing to remember is is you know they built the New Mexico airport for Virgin Galactic. Okay. And Virgin Galactic was supposed to have launched their first flight, I want to say, either the first part of this year or sometime last year. That was their goal. That was the goal they set up in building that spaceport and getting everybody, nice getting it ready. No, it did. Uh, Virgin Galactic is still two years out. Yeah, see, one to saying. two years out. They built something before they ever needed it any time soon. They thought they would need it. The problem with Virgin Galactic is they just they've had delays. Certain technologies weren't completed. The anomaly thing, you betcha. <laughs> an anomaly. An anomaly. Not to be confused with anonymity. Absolutely. Or anonymity. 
language is a wonderful thing. <laughs> oh. Today was an all time. Okay. Here's another one. We got another one for you. Um, again, last week we talked about how I how that essay that I wrote suggested that we would be seeing space tourism uh, extending Felix Baumgartner's balloon jump. Well, here's here's our first <laughs> glimpse into that. See what happens? Uh, happens. Yeah. On June 18th, Arizona-based Worldview launched a scaled-down version of its balloon system to an altitude of nearly 23 miles. Arizona-based? Yeah. Wow. They're, 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 they're right here from this state, Arizona. Um, they did the test flight, originated in New Mexico. Now, they put a video up, and that's what the link goes to here. Um, and the video is actual footage from the day of the test flight. So they show you some of the preparations. They they show some of the footage from the actual flight uh, up I to see, near now, space. That sounds, that sounds interesting. Well, keep in mind, it's a balloon ride right. to the edge of space right. in a gondola. I know. And it's an extreme sports thing because guess what happened? Is bungee cord off? No. Oh. Worse. I had this bungee cord thing going on. Oh, yeah. When it gets up to its final altitude and does its uh, touristy panoramic vision kind of thing, it cuts itself loose from the balloon. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, there is this kind of bungee cord thing. Uh, yes, but that's there's a There's a para, para, parafoil. Shoot, only stays yeah, like an airfoil, yeah, so it tends to glide a little better than a regular parachute. Sure. And that's actually between the gondola and the balloon. So when it releases from the balloon, it starts floating back down to earth. Man, you would be you'd be throwing up and having all sorts of problems with that one. I wouldn't get a hundred <laughs> feet off the ground in that thing before I'd be puking. <laughs> that's that, that's not. The and I guarantee you, it's probably. Right. But that's not that's not extreme. That is just freaking freaking crazy. Well, <laughs> you ride a balloon to the edge of space and then you cut loose the balloon and start falling. Yeah. Well, that's what Felix Baumgartner did. And he did it without a parafoil. Oh, parafoil. Yeah. He didn't open his chute until well, well away after. Yeah, well, he did. So. But then again, he's had a lot of money. You know what that makes him? Eccentric. Rich. <laughs> rich and eccentric. When you're rich, you can be eccentric. So, but this, you know, it's 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 part of the deal. It's crazy. I'm, I'm proud to say that it's done in Arizona. Right. It is. Uh, that actually got my attention right there as well. So, you know, what what we'll have to do is maybe go do an interview with them. That would be cool. I think it would be very cool. I can get you in there. You know, Orbital Sciences actually has a an office out here in the state too. Yes, I know. Down uh, Chandler. Yeah. So, you know, we'll have to talk about that. Um, each week, I, we maintain some links um, for ways to participate in what's going on out here. Yes. And I've expanded on a couple here. The Mars Society operates two Mars analog stations. Now, if you ever wanted to think about a vacation trip, this is something you ought to think about. You can actually pay for a trip to live 
at one of these stations and pretend you're a spaceman for the entire duration of your trip. You put on spacesuits to go outside. Uh-huh. You march around collecting geological samples. You do experiments in the habitat. You take notes and record your observations. If I had money, I'd be what I'd get you for your birthday. There you go. I guarantee you I'd like it. Yeah. Definitely something that is very, very interesting. Um, we've got uh, the links to both of the various habitats. Now, one of these, Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station, even though it says Arctic, it's not that far up. It's located on Devon Island, 165 kilometers northeast of Nunavut, Canada. Oh, I'm sorry, Resolute in Nunavut, Canada. Okay, none of it must be like a province or a county or something like that. The station was the first Mars analog created back in 2000, and since beginning operations in April 2001, 12 separate crews consisting of six to seven people each have lived at the station, and while most missions last less than a single month, FMARS Crew 11 was in there for 100 days. And that one was actually quite well publicized um, back then. Now, the Mars Desert Research Station, MDRS, is the second analog habitat on the San Rafael Swell in Utah. Now, MDRS has been inhabited by 130 different individual crews, roughly six members each, between the first field vision season in December 2001 and the 12th season ending in 2013. Now, each crew usually stays there for one or two weeks and is more focused on conducting field research and simulated Martian conditions. So, you got the one is the idea of training you to actually work in, in Mars and what's out there. And the other one is more about um, the living and operating and stuff like that in the inhabited station. So, check out those links. Uh, and, and like I say, there are opportunities to turn this into uh, a real geekation. <laughs> yes. And, um, Ultimate geek. Oh, yeah. It'd be incredible. Um, in addition to this, you know, we've heard about, uh, in fact, I need to put, uh, I need to put Kerbal Space Program on here as a way to participate. Because uh, we mentioned Kerbal Space Program earlier. Kerbal, KSP, or Kerbal Space Program, is a game wherein you can learn to build and fly your own spacecraft. And as I recall, I believe they go from from the Kerbal planet, I think it's Earth, up to the moon. It has one of the most advanced physics engines in, so when you put your craft out there and you put a big honking engine on it, that big honking engine's a little off-center, your rocket don't fly very good. So you really have to be good at what you put together. You've got to line it up right. You've got to do the research to make the ship work. And we'll get a link for that one. I'll have that up in our list next week. Now, something else. Now, this has been around a little bit as well. It's called Orbiter. And it's a free, realistic flight simulation program for Windows. Now, Kerbal Space Program, it's geeky, it's fun, and there's some kind of funky little gamey things that it does, like the characters for one, that are just kind of 
geeky cute. Orbiter, on the other hand, was actually developed to be a true full physics engine, was intended to give you the opportunity to build a ship, much like Kerbal Space, and to actually launch that and test your craft. It actually has several craft already built in. Kerbal Space, I think you have to actually assemble a craft from existing parts, and then you develop from there. Whereas the Orbiter program actually has um, craft already built, ready for you to select and fly. Now, in addition, Orbi Orbiter was designed around the idea of building your own, building and flying your own shuttle. But they've expanded that to several different tools. We've got an article here that talks from Space Review that talks about the program. We've got a Wikipedia entry here that, that refers you to a little bit of history about the program. We've got the website for the orbiter itself, and we've put the link up for the forum. So again, this is some, some way that you can become yeah, involved. Them there. Just, uh, Do what? Yeah. Copy them. Uh, copy them, paste them, click on them, go take a look at them, whatever. But get involved. One of the things that this program is about is about spreading the news and helping Hopefully, I can inspire you to become involved in some way to grow within this industry and perhaps be ready when we do get to go. Right. Because if you don't start soon, That's right. people won't be ready, and then we're going to be scrambling. Um, and I'm, the last uh, couple of weeks we've been talking about um, Michigan-based Bells is uh, put out these uh, celestial them. studs, space beer. Well, planetary beer, really. Uh, several beers celebrating the, the planets in the solar system. So, but that's, you know. Well, that, I mean, how would you know? I mean, how could you even consider that you're going to have beer, space beer, in the news for like three weeks, right? Well, it hasn't been in the news. It was, it was in the one article, and I traced a couple of other articles that were offshoots. Uh -huh. But. I, I, it's, it's in my list of ways to participate. If you're going to tailgate off the back end of a dragon, that's the beer you want to bring. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be such a cool picture. Wouldn't it, though? Yeah. One of you guys artists got to get got to get that. Come on. Come on, yeah. Go. Get us a picture of a tailgating party yeah, off the end of the... Yeah, we dragon. We're not talking a dragon. Okay, yeah, we're talking the SpaceX spaceship. dragon. And, and, you know, you got to do it with the V2. The oh, Dragon version yeah, 2. Yeah. That, that slick looking ship. Yeah. Because it's got to have people in it. You know, the oh, Dragon yeah, well, V1 doesn't course, have people in it. tailgating. Yeah, so you got to tailgating. you got to have astronauts on there. they got to be drinking celestial suds. Okay? <laughs> Come on, guys. It's less about the publicity for these guys and more about uh, just the fun. Just the fun. And again, it, it gets people to say, wow, you mean we have like space beer? One more way to, to get involved, um, and this is something that I had, but I hadn't really passed it on to you. Um, yeah, I know. The Boy Scouts have, in partnership with the National Space Society, all right, um, put together a 
I think it's a series of merit badges, if I'm not mistaken. Save it, yeah. Not yet. I'll have it for you in a minute. Uh, they've put together a series of merit badges relating to space exploration that uh, Boy Scouts can earn in the process of their development towards Eagle Scout, etc. Now, the North Texas chapter, oh, I guess I should save that so you can get the link. Okay, link is saved. You can refresh and get the page. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the National Space Society has sponsored merit badges for the Boy Scouts of America, and it's called the Space or Space Exploration Merit Badge Pamphlet. Now, back in 2004, they did a big contribution, and it was in need of an update. And so the article that we're putting up talks about the updates for the most recent April 2014 version of that pamphlet about the Space Exploration Merit Badge. And it, it's really kind of cool because one of the things that we talk about these days is encouraging kids to be involved with STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And some people are beginning to add an A in there, call it STEAM, and including art. Now, they've updated the requirements um, to earn the badge. And so what they're looking at is several sections where not only do you, do, does the young man need to develop an understanding of the history of space exploration, but there are certain tasks that they require you to do as actions um, to, in order to demonstrate a knowledge and an understanding of what space exploration involves and so forth. Um, This is another way to become involved in working with the space program, whether it's private or whether it's the uh, NASA program or whether it's a space advocacy group. Um, we're going to be adding more links up here as we go along in ways that you can get involved to participate in ways to spread the word to actually do things, um, and to become a part of the future. We're going to take a break. Yeah, we are. A little late. Just, just, just to remind you, our number here is 714-242-5145. This is the next space program on Blog Talk Radio. KWAD. KWAD Radio. KWAD. Sharing with you the latest news this week of what's happening in the next space. Okay, we're taking a short station identification or whatever it's called here. This is Patty Holtrans at KWAD Radio, and we'll be right back.
Guardians of Galaxy coming out next week. Yes. They're K Wod. I'm hogging the microphone to the K Wod radio. This is Patty Elster. And you know what? You're just going to have to wait. So, um, K Wod radio, and our call in number is 714 242 5145. Call in and slap him down, okay? <laughs> so he's ready for you. This is Alan Joe. And Alan's got some. Very rarely, they don't have something to say. And of course, instead of saying anything, he's typing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you airspace there. Oh, airspace, you're right. Uh, Shows you're ready. He's just going to interrupt right in the middle of the night. Well, of course. Yeah. Okay. Do you have something else to say or what? Yeah, go ahead and get it. It's, it's up there. All right. We're, we're going to start our commentary here. By I have published some time ago a pamphlet, and this pamphlet booklet pamphlet. Okay, it's bigger than a brochure, but smaller than a book. Okay. There you go. All right, you know, so call it what you will. But (laughs) what I did is I had become like many geeks in space. Disappointed, disillusioned, and frustrated with the apparent backward march of space technology, space development, and space science. That's the Amazon location for the pamphlet. Now, <laughs> I it was started as a tongue-in-cheek jab. But when I really got into it, I found out so many well, things. Well, you started as a dare, really. Well, yeah. It was again. It was a tongue-in-cheek exercise, and thus, I mean, you look at the cover. It's kind of hokey, but it, it makes a point. It makes a point. Yeah. Actually, the, I, I wanted a rocket with 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 a couple people in spacesuits that were driving it, but we couldn't get anybody to do that. No. So, but here's here's the thing. Um. Gerard O'Neill's was, I believe, eight steps to uh, an interstellar society or galactic civilization, something like that. And, and he just he defined. Or I'm sorry, must have been Marl, Mar, It was Marshall Savage in in a different book. Anyway, some some one of one of our authors. Uh, did the eight steps to a galactic civilization. Anyway, um, and, and so I did this 12 steps to a permanent lunar settlement. Now, kind of funny that 12 steps. Well, yeah. yeah. And again, there's the 12 step program, and it is a 12 step program, okay? Because, and here was the thing. I mean, yeah, it's tongue in cheek, but here's something to think about. If we're going to settle the moon, that means we're not going to put a base down there. 
or based that like what we're thinking. Well, that we grew up everything, everything that NASA has done, everything that the Martians or Martians, oh boy, everything that the Russians have done, everything that any other space government-operated space <laughs> organization, space agency, has looked towards with the moon or Mars or orbit has been a research base. Yeah. And the sole intent was to deliver material, experiments, and scientists, engineers who could do experiments for science sake at a base for a week or two and then come home. And we would then send rocket after rocket at a cost of half a billion dollars a piece to supply these things for a two-week stay uh, in the hopes that we could learn enough to someday launch people to the moon or to Mars to stay. Which was the idea. Which was the idea for this pamphlet. But in the course of doing the research for this, I realized that a settlement, first and foremost, is not a base. It's not a research institution. Right. That's not what you're there for. You're there to survive. Right. And when I realized that, I said, okay, fine. Let's take a look at this. What does it mean to struggle and survive in a frontier? What does your mindset have to be? And, and the more I looked at it, I, I, I went back through the history books, and I says, okay, when did we have big migrations? And there were actually three fairly sizable migrations that occurred in since, oh, about 1600, give or take. Um, in the 1620s, you had the establishment of the colonies on the American continent. Jamestown being one of the first, uh, and in the late or mid 1700s, you had the colony established by the Brits on Australia, and then in the 18 mid 1800s, the United States opened up the Western territories for people to stake a claim, and if you did what was expressed in the contest information, you could take the land as your own and it would be yours. And in each of these three instances, not a couple of hundred, not two, not even just a few thousand, we are talking that over the course of between 50 and 100 years, millions of people moved to these frontiers in a matter of years and decades. The United States is the end result of two separate migrations. But what struck me the most as I did the research on these migrations was that these weren't, not, not one of them. And in fact, as far as I could find in all of history, never in human history has a government paid for nor sponsored settlement. 
Think about that for a minute. Not once in history has any government ever paid for settlement of a frontier. So why would they do it again? Well, but, but, well now wait a minute. we got to give the guys that are going to challenge me on that some ammunition. So here's the way it works. A government pays for exploration. That's its job. It explores in order to hopefully expand its resources, expand its boundaries, or expand its influence in some other way. So exploration is what governments do. They pay for Columbus. They pay for Magellan. They pay for Lewis and Clark. All right? They pay for Buzz and Neil to explore the moon. They do not pay for people to go and live permanently. doesn't happen. That's called immigration, and that you've got to do on your own dime. Now, that was the first lesson that I had to get past in my 12-step program. Now, I'm not familiar with the AA 12-step program, but I know that there are steps that you follow that you must set aside old habits, old uh, ways of thinking, old ways of living. And part of the reason I referenced 12 steps here was because that's what we have to do if we are going to look towards putting people on the moon, on Mars, or heaven forbid we make it out to um, uh, Jupiter or Saturn and, and get people on Ganymede or Callisto or Titan, for heaven's sakes. I mean, that wouldn't just be cool. And then there's all those freaking asteroids out there. Imagine all them asteroids. Do you remember? Do you remember Farrah Fawcett was in a film years ago? Saturn something. Saturn something. I don't remember now. But I remember she. She yeah. Lived in an asteroid out there. Yeah. It was a hollowed-out asteroid. And that's actually been a theme throughout science fiction. It's been very common mm -hmm. uh, because it makes sense. You don't go out and build anything because you haven't got, you've, got a, you've got to mine out the resources. So you start by going in and digging a hole into an asteroid. And then you make a home. Right. If you're going to go all the way out to Mars... Why come back, for crying out loud? No, no. All right? When people come to this country, they don't come here and then go home. Well, unless you're some of the terrorist groups. Yeah, you come here to learn our ways, and you go back, and then you attack us using our own oh, yeah. things. But, no, when, when settlement comes into play, when immigration comes into play, or emigration, I'm sorry. When migration occurs, it's a one-way trip. And you're not going to get a lot of people moving in that direction until they can make the change and cross over that first step and recognize that we need to look at setting up settlements, not bases. How are we doing on time? Uh, 16, minutes. 16, okay. So we want to get ready. So anyway... The 12 steps to a permanent lunar settlement. 
you're looking at a change in the point of view of what are the goals. The goals are not to set up some telescope on the dark side of the moon, although that should happen eventually. Yeah, eventually. But that shouldn't be the first goal. Right. In the pamphlet, I talk in general detail, in general points, about many of the decisions that we are used to hearing from the engineering crews and the engineering teams working in NASA and ESA and Cosmos, Ros, Roscosmos, as well as the Japanese program and now the Chinese, where it's about building a habitat here, then lifting this tour bus into orbit, then shoving that tour bus out to the moon, figuring out how to soft land it on the moon, and then having enough supplies to last a week, perhaps, and then abandoning it to come home. I got a real problem with that. We're talking, I mean, the latest, latest estimates I've heard, whether you go to the moon, whether you go to the Mars, we're looking at $5 billion, minimum. I mean, I think that's what uh, Inspiration Mars and Mars One are looking at as estimates for the cost of their programs, which aren't even settlement programs. These are go and visit and come back. So, but check out the, 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 the project. Um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Um, as, as a little bit more background, just to give you a little bit more about what I am doing, because I'm trying to get involved. I am a former president of the local Phoenix Moon Society. Spent a year as president. Um, I learned a lot of things that I shouldn't be doing, <laughs> trying to push people around. Um, I don't know if I would say I was a good president. I, I, I tried. We, we set an agenda for a few things. We did get a couple of things accomplished. Um, but we have done, uh, what I have done is look. You a few people accomplishing that. Yeah. Um, we demonstrated a lunar rover racing challenge. Uh, it was actually a telepresence or teleoperation challenge with a couple of rover vehicles and TV screens and broadcast uh, TV things back and forth, and you had to control your rover from your TV screen, and it was it was quite the challenge. It went over very well. We've had stop rockets. We had kids make their own rockets and shoot them off with, with pumps or with stomping on two-liter bottles. Either one works. Um, Wad Media owns a trebuchet. For people who may not be familiar with that, this is a slinging pumpkin chunker, although we don't throw pumpkins. We throw zombie heads. We, we could, but, we don't. but that's a lot of cleanup, and I don't do cleanup. I like picking up my stuff and going home when I'm done, so I can come back another day. Yeah. But these are all things that I'm trying to do to raise awareness by being involved. That is why part of our show includes how you can become involved, whether it's the Mars Society, whether it's the projects that the Planetary Society gets involved in, or whether it's just getting out and doing fun activities uh, with the Boy Scouts, for an example, with their merit badge program. Check something out. Find something that is exciting to you. 
and get involved. There are many ways to do this. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to the engineer for our sign-off tonight. Wishing you all a very pleasant evening, closing out the 45th anniversary of the first humans to land on the moon on July 20th, 1969. We don't want it to be the last. No, we don't. And that's what we're here for. And I want to see it in my lifetime. Good night, folks. See you next week. This is Patty Holstrand, and we are on the last few minutes here. And, of course, uh, everyone else would give you some things that are going to happen. We'll be back um, next Sunday, and uh, hopefully we'll, have, we'll lose uh, half an hour of our time. But, you know, it was still made for, uh, uh, you know, really good, solid show anyway. So thank you for, for listening. And this is k Radio, Patty Holstrand signing out. You guys have an awesome week and get stuff done.